0: Good morning, church. How are you today? Good morning. He is, risen. he is risen. Oh, yeah, you're good at that. I, I know they already did that a couple of times, but it feels like a ripoff if I don't get to say it too, you know? Jealous. My name's Darren, and I'm one of the shepherds on staff here. I want to say good morning and welcome to all of you. Happy Easter. I also want to say uh, good morning and welcome to those of you who are watching on in the overflow in the chapel. I want to tell you that the camera adds like 10 pounds. I am way skinnier than I see him on the screen. So just make sure you come and take a look later, uh, for those of you on the live stream or whatever. Hey, we are celebrating this morning the resurrection of Jesus, which was a surprise to the people who experienced it, but it shouldn't have been. And as we've seen in the text we just read together out of John chapter 10, 1 through 21, we're in an ongoing study in John. As we looked at even last week, Jesus very clearly said, I have the authority to lay down my life. I'm the good shepherd, I have the authority to lay it down. And he also said, I have the authority or the power, I have the exousia, that's the original word. I have the power and the authority to take my life up again. Well, that's an outlandish claim. It's a a ridiculous claim when you think about it. And in fact, in John 10, 19 through 21, in those last few verses we just read, the people were divided. They were confused by the claim. They, They weren't confused about what he had said, but they were confused about why he would say such a thing. Nobody in this room has the power to take up their life again once you're dead. We know that death is final. In fact, that's one of the things that's so terrifying about death is there's no coming back from it. It's a final thing, and when Jesus looks at the crowd and says, no, 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 I have the power and the authority to lay down my life, and I also have the authority to take it up again, they are divided because they're not sure whether he's crazy or whether he's demon possessed. They're not sure what to do with that claim because it's so outlandish, they're not sure how to respond to it. Now we live in a day and age, we live in a culture in which we've sort of become numb to outlandish claims, unsubstantiated boasting, we've become used to false advertising, people saying whatever they have to say to win a crowd, or to move a crowd, or whatever, and so we, we might look at this and go, well this might just be bluster, right, is this just an over-exaggeration, is this just him sort of trying to gain some popularity, or trying to shock and awe the crowd, or whatever. But what's incredible about the resurrection is that Jesus does precisely what he says he will do. He says, I have the power to lay it down, my life, and I have the power to take it up again, and on Easter Sunday, he does exactly what he says he's going to do. Easter is a celebration of the fulfillment of what Jesus had promised. He had said, I'll take my life up again. Sometimes we don't know what to do because we're so used to being sort of misdirected or false advertising or people saying one thing and meaning another, I, uh, When my daughter Lily was really small, I was sitting on the couch with her, we were watching TV, she was like three years old, and uh, we're snuggled up real close, you know, it was really kind of this sweet moment, she looks at me with her big blue eyes, and she goes, Daddy, I love you, and I was like, oh, sweetheart, I love you too, and she goes, no, Daddy, I love you more than anything, and I was like, Lily, girl, I love you more than anything, she goes, no, Dad, you don't understand, I love you all the way around the universe, and I was like, honey, I love you all the way around the universe. And she goes, daddy, will you marry me? And I'm like, uh, uh, it just got a little creepy. You know, like we just, there's a line, there's a line, and we just crossed over it, you know, like. So I wasn't exactly sure what to do. We're having this emotional moment. I looked at her and I said, oh, sweetheart, um, daddies don't marry their daughters, at least not in this state, and so that's not something we can that's not something we can really talk about, you know? I said, so, you know, and and besides that, I said, uh, a daddy has a wife already, daddy's married to mommy, and God only wants daddy to have one wife, and so I'm gonna be married to mommy forever, I love her, but we love you, and someday you're gonna meet a great man, and you'll marry him, and he'll be a part of our family, and it's gonna be awesome, you know? And you guys, her lip starts to quiver, and her eyes fill up with tears, you know, and she looks at me, and she goes, you don't love me. And I was like, "No. No, I do. I do love you." She goes, "No, you don't. You won't marry me." And I was like, "No, I I definitely love you." And I, so I'm in this like panic. I'm sure some of your parents, you know, like, "How do I get out of this?" You know. So I think of a solution. I said to her, "You know, you're too young to be married. You're 3. Well, you know, like, let's we'll talk again when you're 21, right? We can talk about it again later." Cuz here's the thing. I know that by the time she's like 15, she's going to hate me, right? So, I'm hedging my bets. I say to her, "We'll talk about getting married when you're 21." She goes, Okay, and she jumps down off my lap and she goes to the other room. and I, So I thought I'd kind of solved it, but then it occurred to me, like, I probably need to do a little bit of work just to kind of make sure that there's some clarity. So I, I went to my wife, because I didn't want her to hear secondhand. Like, I didn't want my daughter to go to my wife and say, Dad says when I turn 21 we're gonna get married. So... I went to my wife and I said, hey, I had a weird conversation with Lily this morning. We exchanged affection, like we love each other. She asked me to marry her. I said no. She got mad. I told her we'd talk about it later, but I don't want to marry her. I just want you to know that. (laughs) And uh, my wife goes, oh, don't worry about it. I'll I'll go talk to her, you know. So my wife goes into Lily's room the next day. Lily's sitting on the floor. My wife sits down with her and she says, I heard you had kind of a funny conversation with Dad. And she goes, oh, yeah, dad says I can get married to him when we get older, you know? And my wife's like, well, you know what? Um, You know, daddy and mommy are already married. And she kind of did the same speech. Like, God only wants daddy and mommy to be married to one person. And so someday you're gonna meet somebody and you'll marry them and whatever. And we just don't want you to be disappointed, but just, you should know, like, daddy can't marry you. And she goes, oh, mommy, I just said those things to daddy so he'd buy me a gold ring. (laughs) Yeah! Yeah! Three, three years old. And that, like, quivering lip and, like, real tears, that was all just her working me for jewelry. That's what that was. That was manipulation from a three year old. And so we go through life kind of looking at every demonstration of affection with a little bit of suspicion, don't we? Like, what's the ulterior motive? What are you trying to declare? What exactly is behind this? Well, let me tell you this morning, the resurrection of Christ makes some spectacular declarations. And we celebrate this morning that Jesus doesn't just rise from the dead. He does what he said he would do. And in that, he declares some things to us as his people that we do not want to forget. Jesus says, I have the authority to take my life up again. We see in the Gospels that the the resurrection of Christ is actually a Trinitarian affair, and what I mean by that is it isn't solely the power of Jesus alone. We believe that God is three in one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Scriptures teach us that it is God's power and the Holy Spirit's power and the Son's power working in conjunction that raises him from the dead. We see in Romans chapter six, verse four, it's just one instance of this. We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. There we see the resurrection of Christ attributed to the Father. They do this in harmony. They do it in unity, this resurrection. We could look at passages in Romans chapter 8 that talk about the Spirit's role in that. Romans eight eleven says... If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So we see that when Jesus says, I have the authority to take it up again, he has been charged by the Father, according to John 10, to take up his life again, that there is the affection of the Father because of his obedience to the Father's command, but it is something they do together, and yet at the same time, Jesus is uniquely endowed with power to raise himself from the dead. I don't know if you thought about this, but Jesus raises four people from the dead in the Gospels, the fourth of which is himself, That isn't something that someone else does on his behalf. He raises himself from the dead. That's why in John chapter five, which we studied a few months ago, he says, God gives me power. I have life and I have the ability to give that life to whom I will. Jesus raises from the dead. He rises from the dead just as he had said and just as he had told them. We see in sort of the famous account in Luke chapter 24, the last chapter of Luke, the story of the women who go to his tomb to prepare his body for final rest in the Hebrew tradition. They're going for what they assume will be the very last time to see the Lord Jesus' body in person. And when they get there, his body is gone. It says in Luke 24, one, but on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went up to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the 11 and to all the rest. The angels, right, look at these women who were marveling at the absence of his body, they're perplexed, and they go, why are you looking for him here? He said in no uncertain terms he would not be here. He said in no uncertain terms that he would rise from the dead, you could look at Luke chapter nine, verse 22, where Jesus says verbatim the things that the angels here declare that he has said. If you've been with us in our ongoing study of John, you may remember back to John chapter two, where Jesus says to the people in the temple courts, if you destroy this temple, I will raise it up in three days. And the crowd kind of goes nuts. They're angry with him for the blasphemy of it, and they're, they're frustrated. And John, as a little aside in John chapter two says, we didn't get it at the time, But after Jesus rose from the dead, we remembered that he had said, tear down this temple and I will raise it up in three days. And he wasn't talking about the physical structure. He was talking about his life. He was talking about his own body. Jesus had said in no uncertain terms that he would do this thing. And on Easter Sunday, when his friends go to his tomb looking to see his dead body for the last time, he's not there, just as he said. Just as he said. It says they remember They remember what Jesus had said and they go and tell the other 11. And the other 11 don't believe them. But there are four things this morning in our time together that I want you to see that the resurrection declares. Because it is a fulfillment of what Jesus had promised. The first thing I want you to see is that the resurrection of Christ is a declaration of truth. It's a declaration of truth at its very heart, truth that Jesus can be trusted because what he said he would do, he did. What he promised to do, he fulfilled. Now what that says to us is that we can trust him for the other things he declared, right? The most outlandish, the craziest thing Jesus ever said was that he had the authority to take up his own life after death and he accomplished it. He did exactly what he he said he would do, and so you and I then have the ability to look at the great wealth of other things that Jesus claimed and put our trust in those things as well. If he can do this, he can certainly do that. Jesus' resurrection is a declaration of truth that he can be trusted, that he can believe. Even if we look... Uh, at John chapter 10, in the, we see here in this text in John 10, one through 21, the third and fourth of Jesus' I am statements. So earlier in our study, we've heard Jesus say that he's the bread of life. We've heard him say that he's the light of the world. Now here in John chapter 10, verse seven, the third of his I am statements, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. It's weird to think about Jesus equating himself with a door, we studied this last week. But he says, truly, truly, I'm the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to kill and steal and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. The resurrection of Jesus is a declaration of the truth. He said, I will take up my life and he did. So when he says, I'm the door, and those who enter through me will find life. Those who enter through me will find pasture. Those who enter through me will find protection from the thief and the robber. Those who enter through me will find abundant life. We can trust what he says about entering through the door that he is himself, because when he said, I lay down my life and take it up, he was true about that. His resurrection is a declaration of the truth, that he gives salvation, that he gives hope that he absolutely has the opportunity to give us preservation and the power to nourish us and to make us alive. You know, sometimes we think about resurrection and we think about the fact that what Jesus came to do when he died on the cross and he rose from the dead, that what he came to do was to make us have better lives or to give us somehow uh, a life that goes from good to great or to give us our best life or whatever, right? There's all kinds of ways to phrase that. But we sort of think about the power of Jesus being brought to bear in our life as some sort of modification. Can I tell you, that isn't what Jesus taught. Jesus didn't teach that he came to modify our lives or to make them better. He says here in John 10, I have come that they may have life. Full stop, right? That they may have life. His assumption or his understanding was that he came to a world full of dead people. That he came to a world where there were people who did not need their lives modified because they did not have life apart from him. Jesus says, the thief comes only to kill and steal and destroy. I have come that they may have life, that they can have full life, that they can have abundant life. And we can trust him in that. Not only can we trust him in that, but we can trust him in the negative side of that coin as well. The fact that he says, apart from me, you have no life. When he says, I've come that they have life, he's declaring another truth that can be trusted. And that truth is that you and I are lost without him that we were created with a purpose, that God created us for a reason. He created us to know him and to love him and have a relationship with him and to worship him. And yet you and I, according to the scripture, have failed to do the thing we were built to do because we failed to glorify God, because we failed to worship him in the way we think and the things we say, in the things that we do, the way we interact with each other. Even in our attitudes, we failed to glorify God we failed to hit the mark. Romans three says all have fallen short of God's glory, which is our purpose. Romans six says the consequence of that sin or that failure is death, spiritual death, and that's kind of an uncomfortable truth. When Jesus comes and says He comes to give us life, you, you know your pride wants to rear up and go, "Hey, I've got life, buddy. My life's just fine. Why don't you worry about yourself?" But he said he would take up his life, and he did. His word can be trusted, and so we have to listen to what he says when he says that we are dead without him. We have to listen to the difficult truth even when we don't like it, right? I was at Starbucks yesterday in downtown Brea, and uh, I ordered my drink, and the barista behind the counter, he goes, uh, he says, man, I really like your shirt. And I was, just wear- like, I was just wearing a shirt from Target, and I'm like, oh, I, I got this at Target. You know, it's like on sale. And he goes, man, I'll tell you what, he's like, as I've gotten older, and like, uh, uh, the, more I, the more I get older, and I just don't care as much about how I look, I find all kinds of good stuff at Target. <laughs> and I was like, whoa, what just happened here? Like, this just, it sounded a second ago like you were complimenting me, and now it sounds like you're trying to build some solidarity with me in the fact that we don't give a crap about how we look together, you know? Like, I'm not willing to join you in that. Uh, Kind of hurtful you know it's like a kind of a mean truth but i guess as we get older we don't care as much about how we look and then target starts to seem real good you know <laughs> jesus comes and he says i've i've come to bring you life and we have to resist the urge to let our pride rear up and instead recognize and we know this don't we that we're broken that we're lost, that we can't save ourselves, that there's nothing we can do to reconcile the relationship with God because he is holy and just and we are sinful. It says in Psalms 5, the wicked can't dwell in God's presence. Our sin separates us from him and that's a huge problem. It's a truth and it's an uncomfortable truth. But the resurrection declares that Jesus can be trusted. Not only does it declare that Jesus can be trusted, that God is true, but the resurrection secondly also declares that God is Powerful. The resurrection is a declaration of power. You see, what Jesus does in the resurrection, none of us are capable of. Isn't that the most frustrating thing about being a human? Your limited power. That there are all kinds of things in the world that you wish you could change, all kinds of things in your family you wish you could change, all kinds of things in your life that you wish you could tweak, and yet we have limited power as created beings. Not only do we have limited power, we also have limited knowledge. There isn't a single one of us in the room who knows what's going to happen later today or what's going to happen tomorrow or what's going to happen. We don't have the ability to say, I will lay down my life and I will take it up because we don't know what's happening in a week from now. We have limited knowledge, and what we do know about the future, when we, get a, when we get a negative medical diagnosis, or when our families start to fall apart, or when we find out that we lost our funding, or we find out that we're not gonna be able to pay our bills, we know some things about the future, and many times, even when we're aware of what's coming, we don't have the power to change it. And so we're desperate as human beings for someone who knows the truth, who sees what's coming around the corner, and actually has the power to influence change. The resurrection is a declaration of God's power. See, Jesus isn't just a good speaker. He's not just a moral teacher who comes and gives some great speeches and dies before his time. He's not just a good man. He's a man who was God incarnate Jesus is fully God. In fact, all throughout the Bible, we hear Jesus talk again and again. In particular, in our study in John, we've heard him again and again say that he, he's talked about his sentness and his purpose, his calling, his authority, all of those things rooted in divine alignment, that he and the Father are one. Jesus isn't just the best human of all time. He is a perfect demonstration of what humanity can be, but he's so much more than that. Jesus is God in a body. And the resurrection is a declaration of his power. Romans chapter one, verse four says this. Romans chapter one, verse four says, it was declared, he was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. That he was declared to be the son of God in power, more than a man, more than a moral teacher, more than a good leader, but God himself. The resurrection is a declaration of truth. It's a declaration of power. But not only that, we see here in John chapter 10 that the resurrection is a declaration of God's values. God's values. Uh, Jump down with me, if you will, to the fourth of his I am statements. The fourth of his I am statements starts in verse 11 of John 10. John 10 verse 11 says this. He says... I am the good shepherd. Remember, he said, I'm the bread of life. He said, I'm the light of the world. He said, I'm the door for the sheep. And now, here, fourthly, he says, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. But I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Thirdly, I want you to see this morning that the resurrection is a declaration of God's value, that God cares about us, that God cares about knowing us and leading us and guiding us, that he doesn't look at us as property, that he doesn't look at us with a lack of concern. He's not distanced himself. He's not removed himself from our lives, that God cares. There's a declaration in the resurrection about him being not just a shepherd, but a good shepherd. The goodness of God is declared in the resurrection. I think sometimes in our world, it's hard to see goodness, isn't it? We see people with power, we see people who will claim to know the truth, we see people with money, we see people with influence, we see people with millions of followers, but we don't necessarily always see goodness, and sometimes what the world tells us is goodness doesn't actually look like goodness. We live in a world that says influence and power and money and fame is good. But the values of the kingdom of God fly in the face of that. You see, what we see in the resurrection is God's value system, the kingdom value system, which is upside down from this world system. Have you ever looked at the world in which we live and thought, all of the stuff it seems like man is chasing doesn't actually seem good. At the end of the day, it doesn't seem good, even though the world tells us it is. What we see in the resurrection is a declaration of what is truly good according to God. It says in Philippians 2 that Jesus didn't consider equality with God a thing to be clung to or grasped, but he made himself nothing, He humbled himself, he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This isn't like any power structure we see in our world. We don't see the powerful and the wealthy and the influential giving themselves away, dying to themselves. You see, in the resurrection, in the death and resurrection of Christ, there is a declaration of God's value system, which is a value system of sacrifice, a value system of humility, a value system of taking what authority and leadership and power you have and using it for the good of others, to rescue them from sin and death. Jesus comes to the earth not just to put on a spectacle, not just to do a fireworks show, not just to do magic tricks for the crowd. He comes to the earth because we are dead and lost in our sin. He comes to the earth to rescue us, not because he had to, not because he was forced to, not because he was somehow contractually obligated, but because he chose to. We see something about the value of God in the fact that Jesus would come and die in our place in the first place. It says something to us about God's justice. So you might look at, the, at the, the sin of mankind, the brokenness of mankind, and go, why didn't God just go, eh, I don't really care what you've done. I don't really care that you're sinners. I don't really care that you're broken. I'm just gonna let everybody come and live with me in heaven no matter what. I'm just I'm giving everybody a pass, right? It's a mulligan with life, and everybody's going to heaven. Why does Jesus go to the cross? Have you ever thought about that? He goes to the cross because God is holy and just. You wanna talk about God's values, Declared in the resurrection, God's value is a value of justice, truth, and power. But that justice is met in the sacrifice of Christ. Christ didn't die on the cross because he deserved that. He didn't die on the cross because he had earned that. Christ died on the cross because you and I deserve that. Exodus 34 says that God is good, but that he also can in no way let the guilty go unpunished. Right? Right? It says in the Old Testament that there has to be the shedding of blood for the remission or the payment of sin. Jesus comes and dies on the cross because God is unwilling to waver on his justice because he is holy. Jesus comes and he dies for us in our place, a substitute. It's why John the Baptist says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus goes to the cross and he dies there because we deserve that. Isaiah says the sin of the world was placed on him. It says all of our iniquity was placed upon Christ, our substitute. And he goes to the cross and he dies. He sheds his blood as an atonement. It's a big word, but it's a really simple deal. He pays the penalty for our sin. Let's talk about the value of God, the value system of God, his goodness, his justice, his sacrificial love. Jesus is demonstrating for us in the resurrection something about his truth, something about his power, something about his goodness. But not only that, fourthly, we see in the resurrection a declaration of his affection, a declaration of his love. Because Jesus didn't just come as a sort of a way to, you know, sort of pay the debt for our sin and walk away. He didn't just come to atone for our sin. He didn't just come to make sure that justice was upheld. Jesus came because he wants us. He loves us. All throughout John chapter 10, he talks about knowing the sheep. He talks about knowing us and us knowing his voice and guiding us and protecting us and providing for us and walking with us. That he knows us and loves us. The affection of God is declared in the resurrection you might be the kind of person who sits in a room like this and feels unlovable. And maybe you feel unlovable because people have told you you're unlovable. Or maybe because you spent a lot of time looking into the mirror and not loving what you see there or whatever. But can I tell you, the resurrection of Christ shouts to you that the God of the universe loves you, that he loves you. Just listen to a few of these passages, so beautiful. Romans chapter 8, verses 10 and 11. We look at Romans chapter five, listen to this. In Romans chapter five, verse six and following, it says, for while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but, but Jesus doesn't wait until we clean ourselves up to demonstrate his affection. He doesn't wait until we put on our best clothes, we splash on a little brute cologne, you know, brush our teeth, and then he goes, all right, you're acceptable. No, in our mess, right, he declares his love for us the way we look first thing in the morning when we get out of bed, right, the drool that's kinda trickled out of your your mouth and the eyelash that's crusted closed. God loves you then in the mess, in the brokenness. God declares his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, he died for us. Since therefore, verse nine of Romans five, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, how much more will we be saved by him from the wrath of God? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Jesus reconciles us to God. Why does he do that? Because of his love for us. Because he wants us to know him. He created us for relationship. He's not a distant God. The resurrection is a declaration of his truth. It's a declaration of his power. It's a declaration of his values or his goodness. And it's a declaration of his love for us. Jesus comes to the earth and he takes our sin. He, he is buried dead. He shed his blood on our behalf and they put him in the tomb, stone cold dead, but he didn't stay that way. He rose from the dead. He walked out of the tomb. He took up his life again by his own authority and in doing that, he also uses that same resurrection power to extend to us resurrection life. It says in John 10, just further, I don't want to give it away, but in John 10, just a little bit further, we'll study this in a couple of weeks. In John 10, 27, Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. I want you to notice that word give. It's a gift. It doesn't say that Jesus has eternal life in himself and he's willing to sell it to people at the low monthly cost of $44.99 and four monthly installments. Jesus doesn't say I give life to those who have something decent to trade. He doesn't say I give life to those who are worthy of it because nobody is. Jesus says I give them eternal life. That's why in Ephesians 2 it says for by grace we're saved. It's the gift of God, not of works lest anyone should boast or brag. Titus 3 says not by works of righteousness which we have done but according to his mercy he saves us. He gives us eternal life. It teaches in the scripture famously in John 3.16 that God loved the world so much that he gave the only son he had that anybody who believes in him won't perish. Why does it say that? Why does it say we won't perish? Because we deserve to perish. But God in his truth and in his power and in his goodness and in his love shouted from the mountaintops or rather shouted from an empty tomb, his truth and his power and his goodness and his love extends to us resurrection life. If you're here in the room today and you've never put your faith in Jesus, the reality, the difficult truth, like the difficult truth about me shopping at Target, the difficult truth is that apart from Christ, you are separated from God where you sit. Spiritually dead where you sit. I get that that's uncomfortable, but we can trust Jesus because he said he would take up his life, and he did. Right where you sit, you're spiritually dead, but can I tell you this? There is no reason for you to remain in that position because Jesus has already paid the price. Jesus shed his blood for you. And he walked out of that grave to declare his truth and his power and his goodness and his love and to extend to you that very same life, that resurrection life, that you can be made new, that you can be resurrected spiritually in the same way he was resurrected physically on Easter Sunday and go into eternity in the presence of God. But you have to believe. You have to put your trust in Jesus. You have to believe that you can't save yourself, that he is true, that he is powerful that he is trustworthy, that he is good, and that he loves you. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? In the quietness of this heart, of this moment, I I wanna encourage you to kinda do an an inventory of your heart. And where you sit, I, I would encourage you just to ask yourself the question, have I ever put my faith in Jesus to save me from sin and death? Have I realized that he can be trusted, and that he is good, that he has the power to influence and to change my situation and that he loves me. And if you're here this morning and you've never put your faith in Christ, I encourage you in the quietness of this moment to cry out to God right where you sit. There's no magic prayer or special formula. It is truth in your heart responding to the truth of God. But in your own words and in your own version to say to God, I know that I'm broken and I know that I'm lost. I know I'm a sinner. Will you save me by your grace and power? by your truth and goodness and love. You cry out to God and we believe that in the moment that you trust in him for salvation, you will be saved, made new, regenerated. Not good to great, not modified in some way, but given life where before there was only death. God, I pray that you would stir in us, that you would stir in us a recognition of all that your resurrection declares. And that for those in this room who've never trusted you, who've never received that gift of resurrection life from you, that you would draw them to yourself, that they would bow the knee before you and be transformed. We pray that in Jesus' name, amen.